For it was for this reason that the Lord endured the deliverance of his flesh to corruption, so that we might be cleansed by the forgiveness of sins, that is, by his sprinkled blood. Well, that's a brief quotation from the Epistle of Barnabas, which is a first century document, which is extremely primitive, extremely ancient, and reminding us that the reason Jesus became incarnate, and the reason he was willing to take that flesh that he took on and see it and give it to corruption, was so that we might be forgiven of our sins through the sprinkling of his blood. And I believe that ancient truth is going to be vindicated in our text today. Last week, we looked at the birth of Christ announced. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced the birth of Christ. Today, we are going to look at the birth of Jesus. Last week, it was announced. This week, Jesus is to be born. Although the text is still going to devote quite a amount of time to talking about what's happened before his birth, nonetheless. And what's interesting is we're going to have uh, some, some parallel here between this week and last week. Last week, an angel appeared to Mary and told her the good news of the Incarnation, told her the good news of Jesus. And this week, we have an angel now appearing to her fiancé, Joseph. He's going to appear to Joseph and tell Joseph the good news of the Incarnation. And so we are going to look at a yet another angelic revelation. If you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew describes, he narrates the birth of Christ for us by telling us Joseph's side of the story. Last week we looked primarily at Mary's side of the story, but now we have Joseph's side of the story. And so how, how do things transpire with Joseph? Well, the text begins by reminding us that Joseph and Mary were engaged. Now, we didn't go into a lot of detail about this last week, but it's important for the text this week. Uh, the engagement process in Jewish culture was very different from ours. There were some similarities, but the primary difference was that for them to be engaged was still a legal process. So even though you weren't technically married yet, a legal contract was already binding. 
So there, it was almost like in a sense you were married, but it wasn't fully or finally uh, consummated until your wedding night. But the reason that's important is because in Jewish culture, to break off an engagement is still a form of divorce. In our culture, it's not. It's just breaking up. But their form of engagement, because there was a legal contractual obligation, that's why the text says that they were betrothed, yet Joseph sought to divorce her. It's not a contradiction. That's actually how it worked. And so we are told right from the get-go that Joseph wants to divorce Mary, and we know why. She's pregnant, and he knows it isn't his. I, I, I don't have to tell any of the jokes. I'm sure you've grown up in a Christian family and culture. You've probably heard all the jokes and comedians talking about what this might have been like for Joseph to... Uh, have his, his, his fiance give this excuse, right? I, I promise uh, I'm pregnant, but I promise it, uh, it was the Holy Spirit. It was God, right? Now, we don't even actually know that Mary did that, by the way. We, we don't know how Mary went about this. We don't know if maybe she received some instruction from the angel not to say anything or what to say. I mean, we don't actually know how Mary went about this, but we can sort of safely assume that, you know, Mary uh, at some point in time was visibly pregnant or maybe she told him right away. Either way, Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant and he doesn't buy the story. Or maybe there was no story at all. But all he knows is my wife is pregnant. I didn't do it. She cheated on me. She cheated on me. And so the text then tells us his course of action, which was to divorce her. Now, last week I talked about how I'm kind of giving this month-long sermon series, the title, The Old Familiar Stories, because we're looking at these things that we know and we're re rehearsing and re-remembering these great truths. But sometimes along this process, I might actually ruin some of these stories for you. And here's one of the places where I might ruin it for you. The way we tend to read the text, specifically verse 18 or forgive me, verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We tend to read that as, so Joseph wanted to divorce her, but because he was a just man, he chose to do so quietly. But the ESV really translates this in a really appropriate way. If you read the Greek scholars who actually know the language, that is not how it's meant to be read. In other words, we want to read this as if the justice is qualifying the manner of his, how he divorced her. That because he was just, he wanted to do this quietly. But it's actually connected to the divorce itself. So what the text is actually saying is because Joseph is just, he divorced her. That's what the text is actually saying. The justice qualifies his divorce, not, not the manner of the divorce. It is because he is a just man that he decided, I'm done with her. That was his justice. That was his righteousness, which is kind of, that doesn't go down as easy as the other way. But the point is, is Joseph was familiar with the Old Testament. And if you read your Old Testament scriptures, adultery was a serious thing. Unlike in our culture, adultery in the Old Testament was a capital crime. It wasn't just taboo. They put you to death for that. Now, uh, the Rome had taken away the death penalty from the Jews, so this was not an option for Joseph. Which, by the way, that's very important because that reminds us of why Jesus had to be crucified by the Romans. You see, in the Old Testament, if someone committed blasphemy, what do you do? Just take them outside the city and throw some rocks at their heads. They couldn't do that with Jesus because they had taken that away. So, so to, to truly follow the Old Testament was out, out of Joseph's reach. He could not truly follow God's law. 
So, but he knew, still, nonetheless, this is a serious offense. And so because I'm a just man, I can't just wink at this. I can't just act like this didn't happen. So his justice led him to put her away. But it is true, as the text says, he had this competing desire, which is, I'm really not interested in making life hard for this woman that I love. So he wanted to fulfill the law and be just and divorce her, but he wanted to do so in a manner that did not put her to open shame and everyone mocking her and making fun of her. So he tried to alleviate her burden as much as he could while fulfilling the demands of the law. So we know something about justice. Well, forgive me, we know something about Joseph, and that's he's a good man. He's a righteous man. But thankfully... His interpretation of the events is not true. And while we can somewhat understand how difficult that was for him to believe, God decides to aid Joseph in his unbelief and he sends a miraculous vision. He gives him an angel of the Lord, this time the angel is unnamed, to appear to him in a dream. And the angel confirms what was true about Mary and so how do things proceed? Verse 25, or forgive me, verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So all ends well. What's interesting about this text is that there's an incredible amount of parallel to what we read last week in the events to Mary. We, we could almost preach the exact same sermon. Not going to, but we could. Here's what I mean by that. Let me just remind you of some of the points we covered last week. What are some of the things the angel taught us about Jesus to Mary? Well, we concluded with with, with Jesus being the Messiah. That was kind of like our overall point. That's what the angel was subtly communicating. He's the Messiah. Well, the angel to Joseph is very explicit. Or forgive me, Matthew is very explicit about this. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You want to know what the word Christ means? Messiah. It's the Greek word for the, the Jewish concept of the Messiah. So, so in other words, Matthew 1.18 could be read this way. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. So Matthew's very explicit with what was implicit last week. Right? But there's a similarity. Another similarity was what's definitely being emphasized in this text, just as last week, is the virgin birth. So we see yet again how important the virgin birth is to Christmas. It is harped on in both of these texts, right? Mary is said to be a virgin in verse 18. When his mother Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, right? So two different times they are said to be, she is said to be a virgin there. It's again in 22 through 23. Uh, Behold, the quotation from the Old Testament, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then it ends with the virginity of Mary in verse 25. But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So as a matter of fact, Matthew even takes the virginity a step further. Because last week all we saw was really should have been called the virgin conception. Jesus was conceived by a virgin. But Matthew takes it all the way another step and tells us in verse 25 that Joseph refused to know his wife intimately until after Jesus was born. So he was not just virgin conceived, he was also virgin born. And I do briefly need to go on a brief rabbit trail. It's actually very important just in terms of our understanding of church history. 
Uh, there is a very prominent doctrine within the broad umbrella of Christendom known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. This belief that Mary was always a virgin, she lived and died a virgin. And this, this is a still, this is dogma in the Eastern Orthodox Church and in the Roman Catholic Church. But believe it or not, while it's not a Protestant doctrine, it was still popular among the Reformers. The vast majority of the Reformers believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. But this is an issue I would argue the Reformers got wrong, and I think that the Reformation has evolved in a biblical sense in this. Uh, I would encourage you, it's not like this huge doctrine of the faith that doesn't separate our fellowship, but I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to reject any notion that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. It just simply does not fit with the biblical data. And the reason I bring that up here is because this is sort of one of them. Verse 25 says what? But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. And it tell, the text told us earlier that before they came together, she was found to be a child. These texts are implying that eventually, after the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage life. Now, the texts do not necessarily have to read that way. It's, it's not like a 100% a, a there's no other way to interpret this because that, that preposition until is actually ambiguous in the English language. So it doesn't always indicate that there was a change. Here's, here's one example of that. Imagine if you met a Christian who said, I will love the Lord Jesus Christ until the day I die. Would you look at them and say, how dare you? You think you're just going to go to heaven and then stop loving Jesus? Right? Isn't that what they said? I'm going to stop. I, I will love Jesus until the day I die. So what does that imply? After they die, they don't love him anymore. But that's obviously not what they're saying. So this word until doesn't have to mean that they came together. But what the Reformation in its history has come to see is that when we put all of the biblical data together, the scripture's really speaking about something very clear here. Not only do we have texts like this that talk about them waiting to come together until something happens, but we also have the New Testament blatantly referring to Jesus as having brothers and sisters. It, it says that, Jesus' brothers and sisters. And so there's all these theories, well, they could have been uh, children from one of Joseph's past marriages. We don't know that Joseph had a past marriage. The text doesn't say that, but because people are bound to this tradition, they're forced to find things that aren't in the text to make sense of it. Or, you know, the, the word in the Greek could technically mean cousin. So these are probably a different Mary's children. The Bible tells us that they came together. The Bible tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And just historically we know this idea of a woman in a very patriarchal society deciding, you know what, I'm going to be a virgin and I'm still going to get married. I'm going to be a virgin, but I'm going to get married and I'm going to force my husband to accept my virginity. That is unheard of in Jewish culture. A woman had no right to just make that claim and force her husband to submit to it. And I guarantee you, Joseph doesn't want that kind of a marriage. Guarantee you that. The overall biblical data, you need, we, Jesus had, Mary and Joseph came together. They had children. They had biological children. But what the text wants us to emphasize is that Jesus was not one of them. They were really half-brothers and sisters that he had. Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin. And that's something we also learned last week. Oh, and one other just tidbit. This is also really helpful, important historical information. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You want to know what's so amazing about this verse? 
This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7. Now the Jews, one of the arguments that the Jews uh, created to resist accepting Jesus as the Messiah was the Hebrew that Isaiah, the Hebrew of Isaiah 7, the word there for virgin is a very ambiguous term. The Hebrews had a more specific word for virgin, but for some reason Isaiah chose not to use that word and he used a more ambiguous word that could mean virgin or it could just mean a young woman. And so the Jewish people rejected that the, the Messiah has to be born of a virgin. He just has to be born of a young woman. He doesn't have to be born of a virgin. So why does the text here say virgin? Well, because Luke is quoting from something we've talked about before called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then eventually it was translated into Greek. Now, here's what's so amazing. You want to know when it was translated? Long before Jesus. Before Christ. This was the Bible that Jesus inherited, that the apostles inherited. Here's why that's amazing. So who is it that translated the Hebrew into the Greek? It wasn't a bunch of biased Christians. It wasn't a bunch of Jesus followers who said, okay, we need, we need to make this, like, really make Jesus fit with our theory. This was translated by Jews hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. So it was, and guess what? In the Greek, you don't have the option to have some kind of ambiguous term. They've either got virgins or young women. That's their only option. And so it was the Hebrew scholars who created this and said, how should we interpret Isaiah 7? This is a virgin. This is not a young woman. It's a virgin. And it was the Hebrew scholars who said that. The unbelieving, non-Messianic Hebrew scholars who said, how should we understand Isaiah 7? He's talking about a virgin. And so Luke, or forgive me, Matthew quotes from the Septuagint saying, look, the Bible told us that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So when Jesus was born of a virgin, that should tell us that he has fulfilled this scripture. It's amazing. It truly is amazing. So Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was born of a virgin. We also see, uh, we'll go through these next ones quickly to get to our main point today. But the angel tells Joseph, he, he appears to Joseph and he, what does he call Joseph? The end of verse 20, son of David. Right? Jesus is a descendant of David. And then again, Jesus was born of Mary, so he's the son of man. But go back to verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew takes a break from the narrative. Well, actually, this is already the break from the narrative. Matthew is telling us why the angel said these things. And it's to fulfill the scriptures, and he tells us what Emmanuel means. God with us. Now, in the Old Testament, that would have been a generic phrase. Emmanuel, God with us. It wouldn't have been about the incarnation. This would be something you told, you know, it's like when you say goodbye to someone, you say, hey, God be with you. May God bless you. That's, that was kind of the sense of this. May God be on our side. May God be with us in our daily lives. That's, it was a more generic sense, but clearly we have Matthew giving a brand new understanding to this term. Jesus is not just a symbol that God is for us. With the coming of Christ, his name, his title shall be called by his people. He is the Emmanuel. He is the God with us. So Matthew gives this a very explicit definition. We're not just asking that God be on our side right here. We're telling you God is among us. So we have Matthew firmly giving us the deity of Christ, which we looked at last week. 
So almost every point from last week is repeated in here. So what I want us to do with the second half of our sermon is to really focus on what is distinct in this angelic revelation from last one. What is it that's unique? What's new that's brought to the table? And there are two things that I, I think is brand new, not contradictory, but just additional, that really helps add to the gravity and the blessedness of the Christmas story. And the first one is this. We've kind of already been talking about this, but Matthew, unlike Luke, goes out of his way to make sure we see this, that Jesus' birth fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That was implicit in Luke. In order to be the Messiah, he had to fulfill those passages. But Matthew is being very clear. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He wants us to see that this was not just some random event. God did not just go, you know what, things are really, really bad down there. I need to figure something out. Oh, I know. I'll, I'll send my son. This has always been what God has promised. From the moment they were sent in the garden, and God promised to send a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent, from the garden all the way up to this point, the Old Testament was constantly prophesying the coming of this Messiah. Matthew wants us to know and understand and believe that this was Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. But this does something really great for us in the Christmas story too. What this also does, this idea that Jesus was prophesied and he was promised and then all of these different prophecies all were fulfilled in him, this is just mind-blowing stuff. But it makes the Christmas story so much better. And here's why, because what are we reminded of when we meditate on the idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy? We are reminded of the sovereignty of God. We are reminded of God's control over human history. We're reminded of the providence of God, how God works in the world. What, what we are reminded of at Christmas time is that God is powerful to actually accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. Like, Jesus' birth proves if God says he's going to do something, he's going to make it happen. You're not going to stop him. There's amazing amount of meticulous sovereignty required to fulfill all of the prophecies about Jesus. Let me just give you how the Christmas story does this. This is from a really good book called No Place for Sovereignty. Now, it's not actually about the incarnation. This is a book that's seeking to sort of refute uh, free will, which is kind of the, the common debate that Calvinists and Arminians have, and Calvinists have a different take on free will than most people have. And this is one of the best refutations of quote-unquote free will that I've ever read. But I, I want you to, to read something that he says about how God is even sovereign, even over the free choices of men. Listen to this. Let us for a moment imagine how many free will choices would be involved in moving these people from north of Palestine to the southern city where the prophet said Jesus was to be born. Suppose they had decided to start a week later. After all, such a census would take many months to complete, even if everyone without exception complied as asked. Then, because Mary was pregnant, they might have decided to leave her with her sister Elizabeth, with Joseph traveling alone to represent the whole family. Or they may have decided to stop along the way at Samaria or Bethel or on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Or they might have decided to go on to the next town where they saw how crowded the little city of David was when they finally did get there. 
Any one or more of these decisions would have ignored the highly determined body chemistry of the young mother-to-be, of which the participants knew virtually nothing, and the baby would have now been born in the wrong town, or worse, somewhere on the road between towns. And that seriously damages the familiar Christmas story. What's he talking about there? I'll summarize that, but just for a moment, keep your marker here and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Last week we looked at how Jesus was of Nazareth. Nazareth is where he grew up. Nazareth is where his parents lived. But Jesus was not born in Nazareth. And the prophet, we, we, when we did the Bethlehem candle, remember? The prophecy was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So we have a contradiction on our hands, don't we? How can Jesus be the Messiah if he's from Nazareth, not Bethlehem? Well, God providentially brought him to Bethlehem to be born. And how did God do that? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What a coincidence. The Roman governor, the Roman emperor, forgive me, just decides... Nine months into Mary's pregnancy, I want to do a census. And Joseph just decides, even though my wife is pregnant, she's going to come with me. And as they're traveling, nothing happens to them. They're not kidnapped. They're not attacked. Mary's not injured. The baby's not born early. The baby's not born late. They make it to Bethlehem. And remember the famous story, there was no place for them at the inn? Because of the census, it was crowded. There was no room for them. Yet they didn't decide to go somewhere else. They didn't decide to... God was providentially working in all of these decisions. And none of these people were being controlled. It wasn't like Caesar was like, Oh, my hand is writing a decree for the census. What's happening here? People were just making random choices. And Mary's body was just working as bodies work. And it just so happens that everything God planned, everything God said would happen, perfectly aligned so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's not a coincidence. That is God meticulously, providentially working within and among human choices to bring about exactly to the T what he says he will do. And this ought to be one of the most comforting things you as a Christian can, can possibly believe in. Every night you go to bed, you put your head on your pillow and you know absolutely nothing will happen to me tomorrow that God does not want to happen to me tomorrow. Nothing. If he wanted to stop it, he could. See, to the world, that, that, brings, that, that makes God a monster. Well, why would he do all this stuff? But when you love God and believe he's good, that's incredibly comforting. The world is not just spinning out of control and God's saying, listen, trust me, one day I'll come back. I'll send my son a second time. Didn't really work the first time, so I'll send him a second time and then he'll fix it, I promise. Then he'll fix it. 
The world is working according to his plan. It's not just a dreidel he spun and said, once it tops over, I'll pick it up. He is working in the world to bring about his good purposes. And the birth of Christ proves that. I, I won't read them now, but I would encourage you to look up some of the statistics that Christian mathematicians have come up with trying to figure out if you take all of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus and you try to determine uh, how is it, what are the odds that all of these would be coincidentally confirmed, accidentally confirmed. Uh, it ends up being this astronomical, unbelieving, mind-blowing number. No reasonable, sensible person would assume that this stuff is coincidence. It's not. It's the working of a providential God. What do we celebrate at Christmas time? The sovereignty of God. But probably more to the point as we turn back to Matthew chapter 1. The first unique distinctive we learn about Christmas time here is we learn about prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. God is providentially bringing about his promises. We learn about prophecy and promises. But now we learn about the priesthood. The second thing that Matthew emphasizes here is that Jesus is our high priest. Now, why do I say that? Well, let me briefly remind you before we go back into the text of what we call the threefold office of Christ. This is really, really important in the Christian world. The threefold offices of Christ. You see, the way God set up the Old Testament, the Jewish people, his covenant people, basically had three primary forms of authority. Their lives were sort of structured under the rule of a threefold authority. First, there were the prophets. And what was the job of the prophets? The prophets was to speak the word of God to people. It was to tell people what God had revealed to them. It was to tell people about God. The prophets had an authority to reveal God to the people. So there were the prophets. And then very early on, we have the establishment of a kingdom. The people want a king. God gives into their request, gives them Saul as a curse. But then David shows up, and David is a good king. And then God makes the Davidic covenant with David. And then he promises David, you shall always have a descendant on your throne. And so then the kingship was established. Then there was a king, a civil ruler over Israel. So there were prophets. There was a king over the kingdom. And then even earlier than that, we have the establishment of a priesthood. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, I know about that, the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament, right? Jesus set up this priesthood, and it was for the family of Aaron. They were the priests. But it actually goes beyond that. If you read the book of Hebrews, we are reminded that Abraham had a priest, and Abraham's before Moses, Melchizedek. Abraham had to offer sacrifices to Melchizedek, his priest. So God, even before Moses, establishes a priesthood. And what was the job of the priests? It was to deal with sin. The job of the priests in the Old Testament were to be the intermediaries of Israel and God. They stood in the gap between Israel and God. And how did they stand in the gap? They went into the Holy of Holies with unblemished animal sacrifices and they slaughtered those lambs as a sign and symbol that sacrifice is required for the forgiveness of sins. The primary duty of the priests, though it could be more elaborate, the primary duty of the priests was to bring about, God bringing about through them, the forgiveness of sins. And 
when we talk about the threefold office of Christ, what we mean is that when Jesus came, he fulfilled all of these offices. This is why we don't have them anymore. We don't have prophets anymore. We don't have a king, a, a, a theocratic religious king. We don't have priests. I am not a priest. I'm a pastor. I elder, bishop, deacon. That's what the New Testament words. There's no such thing as a priest anymore. Anyone who calls them that, I would argue, it's a blasphemous term. Christ has fulfilled that. Christ came to be our great prophet. John chapter 1, Jesus says he is the perfect revelation of the Father. He has revealed the Father to us. The greatest revelation of God that anyone has ever seen, better than Moses, better than Isaiah, better than Ezekiel, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the greatest prophet that's ever lived and our ultimate prophet. He also came, we saw last week, what was the emphasis of the text last week? To be a king. Remember, we harped on that last week. What did the text say? That he came as a son of David to sit on David's throne and to rule over his kingdom. When we talked about Isaiah 9, how he will establish his kingdom with justice, with a rod of iron. We emphasize the kingdom of Christ. Christ came to be our king. What does Matthew emphasize? Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Luke told us that they were going to name him Jesus, but Matthew does something that Luke doesn't. He tells us why did Jesus receive that name? Because the word Jesus means something. It was a Hebrew name that had a meaning to it. And what was the meaning? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came, just like John 6 says, to fulfill the Father's will and to save all those whom God gave to the Father, gave to him. Why did Jesus come? He came to save his people from their sins. This is priestly language. He came to be our priest. The book of Hebrews talks about this. The Old Testament sacrifices weren't cutting it. Pun intended. Uh, they, they, kill, they kill an animal. Sins are forgiven, right? No, because what do you have to do the next year? Got to kill another animal. Sins are forgiven. No, what do you got to do next year? And the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 talks about this. This constant, yearly, repetitive sacrifice. The reason it was repetitive is to show the people that this is not actually what can forgive you. These are not sufficient to make you right. But they foreshadow the great sacrifice, the great priest, who is sufficient to actually put our sin away. Jesus came to do what the Old Testament could not do. He came to do what Melchizedek couldn't do. He came to do what Moses couldn't do. He came to do what Aaron couldn't do. And that is forgive you of your sins. The primary purpose of the coming of Christ was to be a priest to atone for sin. And by the way, believe it or not, this, is actually, this was actually unpopular to the Jewish people. What, 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 the, what Gabriel said to Mary, that would have really fired people up. The Jews, when they thought of the Messiah, they had the kingship, they had it down almost right. They were like, yeah, we need a king. But that's because they had a very limited scope based on their understanding of the Old Testament of what that would look like. They were thinking the Messiah was not going to be king of the world, but king of Israel. And he was going to come deliver them from their bondage to Rome and make Israel a great superpower again. In other words, to use a cultural reference, 
the Jews were hoping that the Messiah would show up with his mega hat. Make Israel great again. That's what the Messiah was to the people of Israel. Make Israel great again. We used to be God's chosen people. We used to be a world powerhouse. We used to have our own land, the promised land. And Rome has overtaken us. We're slaves to Rome. We obey Rome. They wanted the Messiah to show up and obliterate Rome and make Israel great again. They were ready for a king. But what we learn in Matthew is that Jesus came to be much more than just a political ruler. I love the way it's phrased in this particular commentary. He puts it this way. The universal scope of the Messiah's mission is not as yet on the surface, but there is a clear break from popular Jewish expectation in this statement that the salvation of Jesus will achieve will be the forgiveness from their sins. Several Old Testament passages speak of the need for sins to be atoned for and forgiven, but while the spiritual condition of God's people was still the concern of at least some messianic expectation, there seems little doubt that the dominant concern in the first century Jewish hope was their political subjection with the restoration of the kingdom of David as the messianic goal. The angel's words thus signal at the start that any political euphoria which may have been evoked by the Davidic and royal theme is wide of the mark of what Jesus' actual mission is to be. His ministry will begin in the context of a call to repentance from sin. And while the focus of that ministry will be on teaching and healing and exorcism, he will also assert his authority to forgive sins on earth. His mission will culminate in his death as a ransom for many, for the forgiveness of sins, and the son of David will not conform to the priorities of popular messianic expectation. In other words... This is good news, but unfortunately to so many of God's people during this time, it was the wrong kind of good news. Because for too many of us, we just simply don't take our sin very seriously. The people of Israel at this time, they just simply, they did not take their sin seriously enough. Okay, yeah, I've got some sins, but we've got the animal sacrifices. What are you going to do about Rome? That was their focus. Their political subjugation, that was their focus. What they were not focused on is this. I am a wretched sinner before a holy God. What am I to do? That wasn't their focus. They wanted political power back. But God was not so much interested in that. And so what is it that we remember at Christmas time? To put sort of a, maybe more of a bleak spin on it, I would say you need to be reminded that your greatest problem is not coronavirus. The greatest problem in your life is not a growing fear of tyranny in America. The greatest problem in your life is not world hunger. The greatest problem in your life is not natural disasters and famines or global warming, or pollution. The greatest problem for every human being is their own wicked rebellion. We sin against a holy God. That's our problem. That was the Jews' problem. That's our problem. This is why the Messiah is such good news. 
Because yes, he is going to make all things right. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to undermine that. The fact that we will one day live in a world without cancer is a glorious thing. And I don't mean to undermine that. The fact that evil will be put right and that the world will be fixed, that is a glorious thing. And I don't mean to undermine that. But all of those things are merely the fruit of fixing the number one problem throughout all of Scripture. You see, what happened in the garden? The problem that starts in the garden was not a tyrannical ruler or an, an out-of-bounds government. It was this, sin. The Bible's conflict starts off with human sin, and it remains the greatest issue for all of human history. Tyrannical governments are just one of the many fruits of our sin. Cancer, and it's just one of the many fruits of our sin. Our greatest problem is our sin problem. And so what makes Christmas such good news is that our high priest has been born. Our great high priest who can do more than Aaron, who can do more than Melchizedek. That's who was born in Bethlehem. The man who would come to save you from your sins. So in conclusion, let me sum it up this way. Two things I want you to remember at Christmas time, along with the seven we looked at last week. So the nine things, continuing the list. Two things I want you to remember at Christmas time. What are we celebrating? Why do we make such a big deal? Number one, because God is sovereign. He is sovereign and good and providentially working in the world and bringing about his promises, bringing about his good purposes. We celebrate that we have the chance to remember that God is working in the world and that we cannot thwart his purposes. That's what we celebrate, but we also celebrate the birth of our great high priest. What do we celebrate at Christmas? That because of the incarnation, because of the gospel, our sins have been washed away. The greatest problem we have has been dealt with.